If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew 20. And we want to look at a parable. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, for a long, long time, I didn't like this part of the Bible. I like this story. And I'm going to tell you why I didn't like this story is because I thought Jesus was wrong. That's never, never a good thing. I was convinced Jesus must be wrong. And as a good American, I assume I must be right. It's my truth. So either get on board or, or not. So page 869 of your pew Bibles, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. The evangelist Matthew writes on their inspiration of the Holy Spirit, first 16 verses, Matthew 20. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard, and going out about the third hour, he saw the others standing idle in the marketplace. To them he, he said, You go into the vineyard too, whatever is right I will give you. So he went. Going out again about the sixth hour, and the ninth hour he did the same. About the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. He said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go to the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired from the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now then those hired first came. They thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So last to be first and the first last. Let's go Lord and pray. Now, Father, as we always do each and every uh, time we open up your word, we ask that you would open our hearts, that we would receive your word, our mind, that we would understand it. Our eyes that we would see your glory, our ears that we would hear and heed your word, our mouth that we would speak the truth of the gospel, and our hands and our feet that we would go in obedience. This is your work. May we indeed marvel at grace. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Have you or maybe a loved one or a co-worker or someone, you, you go to the doctor, they give you a diagnosis. You think, well, I can't be right. Maybe you go to another doctor. Maybe you WebMD it. Maybe you just Google it. Maybe you talk to all your friends and they all say the same thing, what's wrong with you? And you think, well, they can't be right. Or maybe it has to do with, with uh, uh, you know, law stuff, legal stuff, or mechanical stuff. You know, something that you need to go to an expert and you seek out their advice. And they give you their advice, they give you their conclusion, and you think, well, I clearly know better than this expert, expert who have decades upon decades of experience. I just know better because I know better. Chances are, when you read this story, as I have often had the problem with this story, that's exactly what I've been doing. I know better than Jesus. Please, you young people, don't isolate that, that verse, that, that sentence out of context and then tweet it, okay? But I think when I read this story, I know better. After all, the problem with this story is it's not fair. It's not fair. And if I learned anything growing up in, 
these United States of America. It is that fairness trumps everything else. I knew it. And the word came out of my mouth. I got amens from the other half and watch it, preacher, from the other. Oh, man. Let's start with the context. Context here actually goes back to chapter 19, of course. And, and that part of, of the story is, is vital because the, it ends with two key issues. The first is the story of the rich young ruler, and the other comes from that dealing with the disciples. You know the story of the rich young ruler. We know three things about him. He was rich, he was young, and he was a ruler. That's everything we know about, about this man. But you remember, he comes to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, what must I do to be saved? You see it there in verses 15 to 22 of chapter 19. And, and Jesus shows him right away that the problem is the question itself. What must I do to be saved? Having grown up in a good Jewish home, no, no doubt, he was convinced that salvation was something one earned from the Father. After all, think about it. His entire life, not just religiously, but, but, but just personally, has, has gone to that. In order to be a rich, young ruler, you've got to earn being a rich, young ruler. So he thinks that if, if wealth and greatness is something I have earned, then, then my salvation must be something that I earn. And you know how the story goes. Jesus identifies his idolatry by saying, look, if, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. And of course, what does he do? He chooses his wealth over his true Savior. Why? Because he's convinced Wealth is his Savior. Well, then the story turns, starting in verse 23, where Peter has something to say. And Peter always has something to say. He's, he's one of them that likes to talk during business meetings or whenever the preacher says Trump. And, uh, and, and so, so he, he, he wants to brag. He says, well, you know, if, 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 if okay, uh, well, maybe he didn't want to enter the kingdom of God, but Jesus, we were the first to leave everything behind and follow you. And Jesus says, you know what, Peter, you, you've got a point. And so Jesus goes on this, this, this conversation. He talks about thrones in the kingdom, the beauty of the kingdom, rewards in the kingdom. And Peter's like, yeah, that's right. I'm the greatest because I was among the first. And then Jesus concludes chapter 19 uh, there in verse 30 with this. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now, here's the question for you. Does that verse have to do with what we saw with the rich young ruler and Peter, or does it have to do with this parable? The answer is yes. It's both. Because you'll notice that, that chapter 19, verse 30, says that, that, that the first will be last, the last first. And in verse 16 of chapter 20, the end of the parable serves as an inclusio, but it's reversed. In, in chapter 19, it's the first will be last, last first. In chapter 20, it's the last will be first, the first last. Same message, just in, in reverse to, 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 make, to make, it, make it an even finer point. You see, that is the lesson that the rich man missed. He was unwilling to be made last, thus poor, in order to be first, in order to be great. Peter, likewise, does the same thing. He assumes because he is first, he must be great. Let me summarize it this way. The rich young ruler thinks he will be great if he is first. 
Peter thinks he, if, because he is first, he must therefore be great. And what we see in, in these two individuals is at the core, they want the same thing. The rich man doesn't want grace, he wants reward. Peter doesn't want grace, he wants reward. What is in it for me? How many of us come to the gospel, we come to Jesus in order to fix this problem or to earn this gift or to get out of this trouble? And it is in this context Jesus tells this parable. It's not in the context of of Jesus uh, doing an interview on CNN to talk about economics and, and, and moral philosophy. It's in the context of grace. So let's look at the parable quickly here, particularly in verses 1 to 15. We see there in verse 1, the kingdom of heaven is, is compared to uh, a, a, a uh, owner of a house, master of a house. He owns all this land. He owns a vineyard. He goes out looking for day uh, workers. Now, what you have here is, is that these day workers, they would go out to the marketplace and they would sit there like state employees and they would wait to be told what to do. And, and, and so uh, they were poorly paid. And they had no security financially. In fact, in, in that sense, they were lower than slaves. That, that, because slaves had a job. Slaves had a home. Slaves had all that. But these day workers, today they may work 12 hours. Tomorrow they may not work at all. There was no security or certainty in their job. But you see there in verse, verse 12, at the first hour of the day, it's 6 a.m. I don't know if that's daylight savings time or not, but just work with me here, folks. Uh, the, 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 the master goes and says, um, if you'll come work for me today, I'll pay you a, a denarius. That is a day's wage for a Roman soldier. It's, it's a pretty good, uh, particularly for them, that's, 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 that's a good, good payment. And so they, of course, agree to do that. They, they start at 6 a.m. They will finish at 6 a.m. There's nothing strange about any of this. This is, happens uh, multiple times every day in ancient Israel. Well, verses 3 and 4, the landowner goes back. He needs more workers. It must be a state job. You need more people to do. Anyways, um, he goes out at 9 a.m., three hours later. Now, do the math. If the first guys worked 12 hours, these guys are going to work nine hours. That is, according to my public school education, that is three hours less. Okay? That's going to be important. Now, the difference here is the landowner doesn't say, I'll pay you a denarius. He doesn't say that. What does he say? I'll pay you what's, 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 what's yours. I'll pay you what is right. Verse 5, the landowner goes out again. Uh, the budget went up from the governor, so you can hire more people. You know, you got to keep that budget up for next year. So he goes out and hires more people. This is at 3 p.m. Verse 6 and 7, he goes out at the 11th hour. That's where this phrase comes from. So they work one hour. So at 5 p.m., they work for an hour. And then payday arises on the 8th. I don't know if that's the 1st or the 15th, but it arises there on, in verse 8. And uh, notice what, what happens here. When the evening came, 6 p.m., the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers, pay them their wages. None of this is odd. This, this is what they do every day. Beginning with the last. Now, dear reader, you're reading this and you're thinking, that sounds familiar. We would expect the, the guy pay those who came first because they're the tiredest. They've been working 12 hours. Instead, he starts with the last and works his way to the first. Immediately we're saying, we were thinking, ah, this is connected with what we saw at the end of chapter 19. Beginning with the last up to the first. Verse 9, when those hired about the 11th hour came, 
Each one of them received a denarius. Now, that is quite generous. I mean, think about it. Let's say a day's wage is $100, just to use round numbers for, for public school graduates and for state employees. I don't know why I make a lot of state employee jokes. It's just whatever comes to the top of my head. Um, let's say you're making $100. So let me, again, do the math. If you work one hour and you make $100, that is $100 an hour. Does that make sense? I hope so, because if not, you ain't going to get the rest, okay? Now, if you, here you are, you, you, you're working in, in a Chick-fil-A, whatever it is, and, and you're thinking, okay, the guy that worked an hour got paid 100 bucks. I worked 12 hours. That is $1,200, according to Google. Today is going to be a good day. Now, think about what that is. That is two weeks' wage. Remember, you're working six days a week. There's a Jewish calendar, six days a week, and $100 a day, and one day, that's two weeks' wage in one day. Would you like to make that? Yeah, I'd, yeah, we all would. We all would like to do that. This is what's going through their mind. In fact, we see that there in the beginning of verse 10, don't we? It says, now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. So you see right away that the workers were divided into two groups, those who worked from the beginning and those who worked later. But what they're discovering is those guys that work later, they're getting a full day's wage. We should get uh, 12 times that wage. And what would they think? This guy is generous. But what do they discover at the end of verse 10? They thought they received more, but each of them also received a denarius. Whether you worked one hour, three hours, six hours, nine hours, or 12 hours, you got $100. $100. Now, dear American, how do you read that? It's not fair. I bet a lawyer would have a field day with this, don't you? This is what goes through our mind when we read this story. It's not fair. It's not fair if I learned anything in school is that fairness trumps everything else. And that means that they grow in a file complaint. They, they bring their union together. They file a formal complaint, lobby Congress, whatever it is they got to do. And they say there, verse 12, these last worked only one hour. You have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. Well, that makes complete sense. Think about it. At this point in the parable, you and I agree with the bad guys, right? I mean, isn't that the problem? If Jesus says these are the bad guys, at least for the purpose of the story, you shouldn't agree with, with the bad guys. But we are. Because they have a complaint that we would all file that complaint. But notice what the, what the owner does, verse 13. He replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Well, that is your truth, I guess. And he asks three questions. Three questions there in verse 13 to 15. Number one, did you not agree to work for me for a denarius? And the answer is, of course. You go back earlier. The guy said, look, if you work for me 12 hours, I'll give you a day's wage. Remember, that is generous in of itself. These days, uh, laborers, they're not used to, to work, earning a denarius uh, for 12 hours because they're low on the totem pole. And so this was, it was already a generous, uh, a generous, that's not even a word, a generous amount of money. And he says, look, didn't you agree to that? You signed the dotted line. We, 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 we had witnesses to it. Ask your lawyer. This is a legal document. One denarius. You don't deserve more. You agree. Okay. Second thing he asked there is, isn't it lawful to me 
to do with what I want, with what is mine. And of course, we would agree, yeah, until the government finds out. But yeah, yeah, it is. It is. It's true, right? If, if, if you want to give someone $100, you can give them $100. If you don't want to give them $100, don't give them $100. I mean, it, it, it's, it, he's the master of the house. He's the owner of the vineyard. It's his money. It's not the worker's money. Now, they have to earn payment. But, but, but who are they to say that I'm entitled to more of, of what is yours? Remember, he's not, a, he's not, he doesn't, he's not from the government, so he, he can't take what, what isn't his. Thirdly, he asked this. Are you jealous? Are you jealous here? Are you jealous that you got the same as them? Whether the them worked nine hours or one hour, are you jealous? Of course, the answer to that is absolutely they are. The language described here is, is quite interesting here. Verse 15, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Do you begrudge my generosity? And, 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 and the language in this passage suggests that they, they took their denarius, they took their paycheck, and they threw it back at them and said that if we don't get what we think we're entitled to, if we don't get what we think is fair, you can keep all of it. This is a temper tantrum that they, 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 they are throwing. So he says, no, 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 here, here. And he picks it up. He says, didn't you earn this? Didn't we agree to this? This is yours. Why are you jealous with what I do with other workers? Here, this is, this is yours. In fact, notice he describes their eye as envious. This is the language of jealousy, envy, bitterness, stinginess. Again, if, if, if we were to stop right there, we would look at this parable and assume it's a story about economics and fairness. And so we're tempted here to talk about the difference between equity and equality. Do we believe in equal opportunity or equal outcome? But that's not the point of the parable. It's not. This is why we say a text without a context is the pretext for a proof text. What Jesus had discussed with his disciples before bleeds into this parable that we have before us now. What was it before? The first would be last, the last would be first. And what does he say there in verse 16? The last would be first and the first last. Which means the meaning of the parable is found in the, those proverbs. So then what is the meaning of it? Well, for the sake of simplicity, let's see if we can identify some of these characters. I think this is consistent with, with interpretation throughout history and the text itself. Can we just, for, again, for the sake of simplicity, the landowner is God. You have a problem with that? Landowner represents God. After all, God can do whatever he wants with his creation. I, mean, I, I think he kind of owns everything, right? I, I don't think there's a lot of debate historically over that. There is some debate regarding the vineyard. It could represent um, um, Israel, right? The Old Testament frequently portrays Israel as a vineyard. Um, and thus what you have here is, is the first workers represent Israel, the latter workers represent the Gentiles being grafted in. Some really go wild with that. Some say it just represents the kingdom of God. Uh, or a vineyard could mean a vineyard. You know, you know my story. When I approach the parables, I want to go with the simple interpretation, not the complicated interpretation. Right? If, if it takes an entire book to give a simple meaning, you're overcomplicating it when it comes to the parables. They're, they're meant to be simple applications. And sometimes a bird is a bird. Sometimes a vineyard is a vineyard. But regardless of your interpretation of vineyard, that's not going to affect our conclusion today. 
The laborers, I think, it's clear, those who enter the vineyard are those who enter the kingdom of God. And they're broken into two groups. Those who arrive first, everyone else. The steward, we could say, is Jesus, the one who comes to give the wages, if you want to do that. The evening, I think, is clearly a picture of judgment day. So, 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 so okay, we, we can get the characters, we can get some of that, and some of that's good, okay. But what's the point of the parable? What's the point of the parable? That's what we really want, because unless we answer that question, we are going to assume it's a bad economics lesson. So what's the point of the parable? Simply this. You and I need to change glasses. You and I need to change glasses. The reason that we, along with the disciples and the rich young ruler, recoil at this parable because we view the world and how God ought to operate in it through the wrong lenses. We view ourselves and the world around us through a lens of fairness. That's why we don't like the parable. That's why we don't like it. Our debates over equality, over equity, equal opportunity versus equal outcome, is centered on our belief that the world should operate on fairness. The rich young ruler thought it was fair. Through his self-righteousness, he should have the applause of heaven. Israel wrongly believed they deserved special treatment for God because of ethnicity. They were God's chosen people. The disciples wrongly believed they deserved special treatment from Jesus because they were the first to follow him. Got here first. <laughs> but in truth, if we get fairness from God, what we will then receive from God is his judgments. The last thing we ought to pray for, the last thing we ought to desire from God is fairness. Instead of fairness glasses when we come to this text, what we need is lenses of grace. When you look at life through, with fairness goggles, you always feel like you're last, deserving to be first. This is victim culture that we have today. That I'm not getting what's mine. I can take what's from, from you. Why? Because I deserve more. I'm better than others. Why? Because it's not fair. It's not fair. I feel like I'm last, but I deserve to be first. It's quite the opposite when you view the world through the lens of grace. I discover that I am now first. But in reality, I deserve last. Grace is an assault on entitlements. And grace cannot coexist with fairness. And if that's the case, then the, the, what do we do with this? What is Jesus really getting at? Let me highlight, I believe, just three points of application. The first thing we need to see here is the issue of grace. Grace. What is the great hymn that we sing? Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder, clearly written by a southerner, yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide, and what can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide. Whiter than snow you may be today. 
Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin. Can you reconcile that with fairness? Dear Christian, I want you to look into the mirror of your heart. Ask yourself, do I deserve this grace? Do I deserve to be bathed in the blood of the Lamb? Do I deserve a Savior who would come to become like me, to die for me, to be victorious on my bed? Do I deserve any of that? Is it fair that I get any of that? No, dear Christian, you are last. You've been made first. But it isn't just grace. There is also gratitude. See, the key to thanksgiving, key to holiness, humility, love, joy, forgiveness, is to marvel at the magnitude of grace. Jealousy is our way of proclaiming to God, He has not done enough for me. It's essentially what we're doing with jealousy and bitterness and anger, anxiety and wrath and malice and all this sort of saying, God, <laughs> Hello, did you forget about me? I deserve better from you. And there's the cross. There's the cross. Well, what else you want? I've given you the blood of the Lamb. Gore Vidal, anything but a good theologian, he once said, every time a friend succeeds, something inside of me dies. That is an example of someone saying what we all agree out loud, but he's not supposed to. Chances are you and I struggle with this. We struggle when other, other people succeed. Other people get that promotion. Everything seems to be going well in other people's lives. Our neighbors are doing great. Our friends are doing wonderful. Their careers are taking off. Their children are perfect, at least online they are. And, and everything just seems wonderful, but not me over here. And so I recoil at the success of others. This is why we need to marvel at grace and not demand fairness. When we marvel at grace, we rejoice with those who are rejoicing. We mourn with those who are mourning. And we carry one another's burdens, all of us together, back to the cross. Can you marvel at grace? All that we have and all that we are is grace. Thus, I don't look at the blessings of others and and, and, and sink into envy. I marvel at God's grace. Hasn't God been good to my friend? Hasn't God been good to our church? Hasn't God been good to that other church? Hasn't God been good to so-and-so in that program and this or that? I do not dwell on what I do not have. I marvel at what I possess. It's grace. The air I breathe, the kids I play with, the job I work at, the church I attend are all evidences of God's grace. I deserve nothing, yet have been given Christ. I deserve hell, yet have been given Christ. So are you the type of person that can marvel at God's grace, or do you get jealous over it? Why is their life better than mine? Why are their children more obedient? Why does he make more money than me? How come they can get pregnant so easily? I wish I had parents that, 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 that understood me like my good friend. We love it when God is really generous to us, don't we? But it really bothers us when he's generous to others. He can be generous to others, right? He owns the vineyard. What is it to you if someone works for an hour and is blessed by God? Rejoice. Rejoice. 
Kevin DeYoung is right in his sermon on this text. He says, a mark of a mature Christian is that you can root for one another. I think he's on to something. The point of this parable is not just grace. It isn't just gratitude. It is thirdly glory. Fairness breeds comparison. Have you noticed that in our culture? Are we as a society comparing each other to each other? This means yes, my parents used to tell me whenever we were in trouble. This means yes, right? And the answer is not no, so you don't need to know what, the, what that universal signal is. Yes, do we, uh, are we compo- uh, constantly comparing each other? We break each other in the groups. Gender, race, ethnicity, who we voted for, who we didn't vote for, what our favorite color is, who we root for, this or that. Chevy, Ford, all this sort of stuff, right? Blue, red. One of us is watching the the tournament from afar. Anyways, I get one year to glory in y'all's pain. What was it? You don't don't believe in grace? You believe in fairness? I'm sorry. It's just not going to work this year. Not fair. We're not going to the tournament, preacher. Well, have I got a text for you? But what we do is we say that because they, whoever they might be, have more, more advantages, more opportunities, or more favoritism. It's not fair. You do it, and I do it, because we're good Americans. Fairness breeds comparison. We don't just do it at a cultural level. We do it at a personal level. I work just as hard as Joneses right down the street, and I can't pay my bills. I'm more careful with my finances, and yet we can, we can barely swim with all the debt we have. It's not fair. I pray harder and our church is better. We do more outreach. How come we've not been blessed like that other church? We do this, don't we? If it's fairness you want, it isn't freedom you'll get. Fairness breeds comparison. Grace breeds worship. Worship. Striking, isn't it? Whether you worked for an hour or 12 you were given a generous grace or generous gift from a generous owner. Take your eyes off of fairness. Put your eyes on the grace. What do you find? Glory. Isn't this owner fantastic? Isn't this owner worthy of it? You see, when your focus is on fairness, your focus is on yourself. Your focus is on grace. Your focus is on the one who dispenses it. It's grace. Grace breeds worship. You know, in sports fandom, I found that it doesn't matter what a coach has accomplished. They could have won all the trophies and all the championships. They, 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 they could have had it all. One bad year. I'm, I'm not applying this to our recent sports teams. I'm not. I promise. One bad year and fans forget all about it. Have you noticed that? What do fans care about? What have you done for me lately? That is not how faith works. The gospel reminds us that God in Christ, by the means of the cross and the empty tomb, has already and forever done enough for you. You have already been given the victory. Act like it. Live like it. Worship like it. It's grace. 
It's God's grace. One of the things I've noticed in being a dad is I'm apparently not a very good dad because sometimes I'll go to a store and I'll see something and I'll think my son or my daughter would really like this one thing. And so I get that one thing and I come home and I'll say to either my son or daughter, hey, daddy, got you something, right? And they just, yeah, thank you, daddy. This is awesome. Oh, that's what I always wanted. This is wonderful. It's got my favorite hero on or whatever it might be. What's the other kid do? Where's mine? Where's mine? Have you noticed this? You grandparents are the problem here. I'm just going to be straight honest with you. You know, it's the, well, I, I was going to get so-and-so something, but they didn't have it of equal value that would have worked for the other children, so I didn't get it. Who cares about the other kids, right? I mean, they're going to be fine. There's food in the kitchen. There's a roof over their head, clothes on their back. They're fine. Pardon for the rant. But that's the question, isn't it? Where's my gift, Daddy? Where's my gift? See, that's the question about fairness. If sibling one gets something, sibling two is entitled to it. It's fairness. But we're not talking about fairness, are we? We're talking about grace. What's the story of grace? What does God say when we ask that question? It's here. It's yours. Will you take it? You see, you can choose today fairness or freedom. You can choose grace, but it must be received as a gift. Is that what you want? I pray it is.